Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the fall of 1492, Italian explorer Christopher Columbus was on the verge of total defeat. He was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, leading an expedition of three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He believed that by sailing west from Spain, he could find a shorter route to China. But for nearly two months, the expedition only discovered more water. Tempers rose among Columbus's crews, and whispers of mutiny echoed below deck. Then, in the early morning hours of October 12th, a sailor on the Pinta spotted land on the horizon. Once they made it to shore, Columbus and his men gazed upon the tropical beauty before them. Clear blue water, stark white beaches, and palm trees everywhere. Columbus realized he wasn't in China. He believed he had stumbled upon a new world. And when he returned to Europe, this news sparked the Age of Discovery. For the next century, a wave of Spanish explorers armed with a Christian cross and a sword traveled deep into the unknown continent. They discovered new land and wealth, unlike any seen before. But as they staked their claims in this so-called new world, they destroyed civilizations that had been living in the region for thousands of years. The era of the Conquistador had begun. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're traveling back to the 16th century and looking into the lives of the Spanish conquistadors. They were some of the first Europeans to explore the Americas, but left death and destruction in their wake. This time, we'll follow the rise of Hernan Cortez, conqueror of Mexico. We'll learn how Cortez joined the wave of men seeking fame and fortune in the New World, and how he set off to find the fabled Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. Next time, we'll follow Cortez's unusual friendship with Emperor Moctezuma. As tensions rose between the Spaniards and the Aztecs, it was only a matter of time before blood was spilled. Coming up, We'll set sail to Mexico. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger, 
and an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. History is a never-ending story. When a major event occurs, sometimes the consequences are felt immediately or only last a few years. Other times, the effects may ripple across centuries. Such was the case of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. The Aztecs and Mayas existed long before the Europeans arrived. But the destruction of these indigenous empires was sparked by a religious war on the other side of the world. In 711 CE, the Moors of North Africa invaded the Iberian Peninsula, driving the Catholic Spaniards to the southern border of France. For the next 800 years, the Spaniards fought to reclaim their territory. This centuries-long battle became known as the Reconquista. While most of the peninsula was eventually reclaimed, the Spaniards struggled to take back a tiny strip of land called Granada. No matter how many times the Spanish kings invaded, the Moors defeated them and held the territory. That is, until a queen took the Spanish throne, Isabella I of Castile. The devoutly Catholic Isabella feared that the Muslim Moors would align with the Ottoman Turks and invade Europe on two fronts. The Turks had already captured Constantinople, and the last thing Isabella wanted was for them to take Rome, too. In 1482, Isabella launched a new war, determined to take back Granada for Christendom. The Spanish and the Moors fought for ten brutal years. But finally, on January 2, 1492, the Sultan of Granada surrendered. Spain had won, and the Reconquista was complete. But fighting a massive war was costly. As Isabella relished in her victory, she realized her treasury was nearly empty. Luckily, a solution presented itself, or rather, himself. In the midst of Reconquista, Italian explorer Christopher Columbus came to Isabella with a novel idea. Since the Ottomans controlled Constantinople, the gateway city to Asia, he would find a new trading route to China and India. All Columbus needed was a sponsor, and he wanted Isabella to back him. In desperate need of a post-war revenue stream, Isabella gave Columbus her blessing and a budget. He built his three ships and set out across the Atlantic, and after two grueling months at sea, Columbus and his crews reached land. Columbus landed in the Bahamas, but believed he had reached Asia. Over the next few months, Columbus hopped around the islands of the Caribbean. As he explored, he realized none of them matched the descriptions of Asia he knew. It seemed to him he'd landed in a new world. Initially, Columbus was frustrated with the failure of his mission to reach China or India. 
However, that despair faded as he came into contact with the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas. He noticed they had something far more alluring than a new trade route. They had gold. In March 1493, Columbus returned to Spain as a hero. For Queen Isabella, his journey had brought everything she wanted. An expansion of her kingdom, new people to convert to Catholicism, and most important of all, the possibility of wealth beyond measure. So in the decade that followed, Spain commissioned expeditions deeper into the heart of the so-called New World. Though recent archaeological evidence has shown that Columbus was not the first European to reach the Americas, his voyages ushered in the Age of Discovery. Europeans from all walks of life joined these expeditions. Many sought riches, while others hoped for adventure and fame. Among them was a fame-seeking Castilian named Hernán Cortés. Cortés was descended from a family of Spanish warriors. Many of his ancestors were soldiers and hidalgos, or people of nobility. These men, including his father, fought in several of Spain's wars, including Reconquista. So when Hernán Cortés was born in 1485, it seemed fitting for him to pick up the sword like the rest of his family. Unfortunately, young Cortés was physically weak and often sick. Though his father trained him in the ways of a soldier, a military career seemed highly unlikely. Instead, his parents wanted him to get an education and become a lawyer. In the mid-1490s, the teenage Cortés attended the University of Salamanca, Spain's oldest academic institution. Although he was an excellent student, Cortés quickly grew bored of university life. He wanted action. After two years of study, he returned home, much to his parents' frustration. But Cortés couldn't ignore his ancestry. He grew up surrounded by hidalgos, and he craved excitement. And by the time he left Salamanca, his health had greatly improved. So he decided he wasn't going to waste his days behind a desk. Luckily, Cortés had a clear path to adventure, a voyage to the New World. It's likely Cortés chose to go to the New World because of family connections. He was related to a man named Nicolás de Ovando, who was recently named the governor of Hispaniola, or present-day Haiti and Dominican Republic. Ovando was due to move to Hispaniola at the start of 1502, so Cortés traveled to Seville and made arrangements to join the voyage across the Atlantic. Unfortunately for him, he missed his ride. While waiting to leave from Seville, Cortés had an affair with a married woman. Climbing out of her window one evening, he fell and injured his leg. Then, while he was recovering from that, he also contracted malaria. With Cortés sick and injured in bed, Ovando's ships left without him. It also turned out Ovando's voyage was the last one scheduled to head for the New World for a while. For the next few years, Cortés wandered around Spain working various odd jobs. While living in Castile's capital, Valladolid, Cortés even became a notary. This role put him directly in the orbit of government administrators, and he learned the inner workings of bureaucracy. He didn't know it then, 
but these skills would prove invaluable in the future. Despite his new skills, Cortez's desire for fame and fortune only grew stronger with each passing day. Though for him, wealth wasn't about hoarding money. It was about being known. In a letter to his father, Cortez said, I look on it as better to be rich in fame than in goods. Cortez even hoped to earn the rare title of Don, which commanded respect in Spanish society. But the only way to become a Don was through action, so he continued to seek his chance to go to the New World. Finally, while working in Seville around 1504, Cortez learned that a fleet of merchant ships was soon heading to Hispaniola. Refusing to let this chance slip away, Cortez immediately bought passage onto one of the vessels. The voyage across the ocean was uneventful, and a few weeks later, Cortez stepped foot on Hispaniola. As he gazed upon the bustling colonial town soaking in the tropical breeze, he knew the time had finally come to make a name for himself. Coming up, Cortez joins in the Spanish conquest of Cuba. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries, free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Sometime around 1504, 19-year-old Hernán Cortés landed in the Americas. It had been 12 years since Columbus ignited the era of exploration, and stories of adventure in the New World filled Cortés with dreams of fame and fortune. He'd finally made his way to Spain's Caribbean colony, Hispaniola. Now he was determined to achieve his dreams by any means necessary. Cortez reconnected with his relative, Governor Nicolás de Ovando, who quickly took a shine to the enthusiastic Cortez. Ovando made Cortez his notary and even sent him on an expedition to the western portion of the island. Historian Hugh Thomas speculates that this mission may have been to suppress the indigenous people. A year earlier, an indigenous queen named Anacona stood up against the Spanish colonizers there. Ovando responded by ambushing her. The queen was hanged, 
but it was possible there were a few indigenous warriors who continued to live in the region, and Ovando likely wanted them eliminated. If that was indeed the reason for Cortez's mission, then it was almost certainly his first experience in the ruthless suppression of indigenous descent. Over the next few years, Cortez moved out from under Ovando's wing and his reputation grew. However, it wasn't thanks to his hard work or keen intellect. Rather, it was because Cortez transformed into a bit of a swashbuckler. Cortez loved to fight and had no problem getting into physical confrontations. Some of these brawls resulted in permanent battle scars, like one across his chin, which he proudly displayed like a badge of honor. It might have been this affinity for fighting that brought Cortez into the company of another conquistador, Diego Velazquez. 46-year-old Velazquez was also a Hidalgo and already had a reputation as a warrior. He fought against the Moors during Reconquista and then sailed to Hispaniola on Columbus's second voyage. Once in Hispaniola, Velazquez became known for his utter cruelty toward the indigenous peoples, especially the Taino. Exactly when Cortez and Velazquez met is unclear, but we do know Cortez became Velazquez's secretary. And this new role immediately put Cortez on the front line of Spain's push for conquest in the Caribbean. In 1511, Velázquez and Cortés joined an army of Spaniards to invade Cuba. Once on the island, they marched toward a settlement called Baracoa. Allegedly, the Spaniards hoped the indigenous peoples in Baracoa would be docile, allowing them to be conquered swiftly. However, a Taino leader named Atui organized a resistance. Atui was a native of Hispaniola, but when he discovered the impending invasion, he fled to Cuba to warn the Taino living there. Unfortunately, his warning did little to stop the Spanish onslaught. The technologically advanced Spaniards destroyed the people of Baracoa and captured Atui. Just before Atui's execution, a Franciscan friar asked him if he wished to convert to Christianity. Allegedly, Atui responded, Accepting baptism would mean having to spend an eternity in the company of Spaniards. Hell would be preferable to such a fate. Moments later, Atui was tied to a stake and burned alive. After the execution, the Spaniards swept through the rest of Cuba, slaughtering anyone who resisted. Within two years, Cuba was under Spanish control. With the island now in Spanish hands, Cortez set out to build a life for himself there. As Velazquez's secretary, he had new responsibilities, like making sure the Spanish crown received one-fifth of everything plundered from the island, including gold and enslaved indigenous people. But beyond his administrative duties, Cortez also worked the land. According to historian Hugh Thomas, Cortez was the first settler to own cattle in Cuba. Not only that, he also discovered a sizable gold deposit on his land and soon became quite wealthy. As the years passed, Cortez evolved into the consummate politician. 
He was charismatic, calculating, and well-read. As a result, people gravitated toward him, which in turn made Cortes increasingly ambitious. But this growing ambition sowed the seed of discontent between himself and his benefactor, Diego Velázquez. In 1514, a group of Spanish settlers confronted Velázquez about the encomienda system. Simply put, the encomiendas were Spain's version of communal slavery. In exchange for food and shelter, indigenous peoples were forced to work in brutal conditions. But now, the settlers wanted Velázquez to redistribute the enslaved peoples to give them more manpower. Cortes agreed with the angry settlers and brought the issue to Velázquez. Sensing a threat, the temperamental Velázquez responded by having Cortes arrested, though after he calmed down, he released Cortes. The following year, tensions between the men heated up again over a woman named Catalina Suárez. Cortes courted Catalina and promised to marry her. However, when it came to actually going through with the marriage, Cortez backed down. Coincidentally, Velázquez was interested in courting Catalina's sister. To impress her, he opted to intervene on the Suárez family's behalf and once again had Cortez imprisoned. However, Cortez bribed his guard and escaped. According to author Buddy Levy, when Cortez was arrested again, Velázquez threatened to hang him. Undeterred, Cortez donned a disguise and escaped again. But Velázquez didn't arrest Cortez for a third time. In fact, they settled their differences, and Velázquez eventually appointed Cortez magistrate of Santiago de Cuba, the colony's capital. It's possible that the reconciliation was based on Cortez's eventual marriage to Catalina Suárez. It's also likely that Velázquez considered Cortez as a permanent subordinate and unworthy of his energy. Though Cortez flashed his arrogance, Velázquez assumed Cortez would never actually challenge his authority. But he couldn't have been more wrong. In April 1518, Diego Velázquez sent his nephew, Juan de Grijalva, to explore the recently discovered Yucatán Peninsula in present-day Mexico. Months later, one of Grijalva's men, Pedro de Alvarado, returned to Cuba and reported that the expedition had made contact with an indigenous people called the Totonics. Compared to other tribes in the Yucatan, the Teutonics were pleased to meet with the Spaniards and showered them with gifts of gold. But more importantly, Alvarado said the Teutonics told them about a wealthy city known as Tenochtitlan. It was part of a federation of three powerful city-states, Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopayan. Together, they ruled the Valley of Mexico through fear, extortion, and subjugation of smaller tribes. Today, we know this federation as the Aztec Empire. Among the empire's three city-states, Tenochtitlan reigned supreme. It was the home of the Mexica people, and of all the cities in the valley, it was said to be the grandest and richest. After hearing Alvarado's tale, Velázquez announced another expedition to the Yucatán, 
and he chose 33-year-old Hernan Cortez to lead it. This was the break Cortez had been looking for, and he didn't hesitate to seize it. Over the next two weeks, Cortez purchased 11 ships and recruited 530 men, including Pedro de Alvarado. As the size of the crew and fleet took shape, Velasquez wondered if Cortez had ulterior plans. Ostensibly, his mission in the Yucatan was to search for gold, convert the indigenous peoples, and establish towns in the name of Spain. But after seeing the massive expedition take shape, Velasquez suspected that whatever fortunes Cortez acquired, he would keep for himself. Fearing Cortez's ambition would ultimately overreach his own authority, Velasquez decided to replace him. However, Cortez learned of Velasquez's plans, so he decided to beat Velasquez to the punch and leave immediately. On February 18, 1519, Cortez and his army fled Cuba for the Yucatan. While his future was now uncertain, Cortez believed his act of disobedience was his best chance at fame, and he was right. The world would soon know his name as a ruthless, violent oppressor. Coming up, Cortez demonstrates the brutal might of the Spanish army. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. In February 1519, 33-year-old Hernán Cortés finally had his chance at fame with an expedition to the Yucatán. However, he fled Cuba with his men and ships in a rush before Governor Velázquez could stop him from leaving. Despite the inauspicious beginning, Cortez refused to let his deteriorating relationship with Velasquez undermine his ambition. Right from the start, though, his ability to lead was put to the test. After leaving Cuba, Cortez's second-in-command, Pedro de Alvarado, broke off from the main fleet, claiming that the bad weather had separated the ships. He went ahead to the island of Cozumel, and when Cortez finally arrived, he learned that Alvarado and his men had already raided a Maya village there. Cortez knew he needed to placate his men with plunder, but he also couldn't pick a fight with the locals right away. After all, he intended to convert them to Christianity, and to do that, he needed to maintain some goodwill. 
So Cortez ordered Alvarado to return what he had stolen and informed the Mayas that despite the initial raid, the Spaniards came in peace. The Mayas believed him and opened their village to trade with the Spanish explorers. They exchanged food, gold, and various trinkets. It seemed the expedition was back on track. However, Cortez soon discovered signs of the Mayas' ritual human sacrifices. Appalled, he explained to the Mayas that there was only one god, the Christian god, who abhorred human sacrifice. The Spaniards destroyed Maya idols and replaced them with Christian icons, such as a cross and an image of the Virgin Mary. The Mayas didn't resist the attack on their religion, likely because they feared another violent retaliation. It's also possible they simply added the Christian god to their pantheon of other gods. According to historian Fernando Cervantes, it wasn't uncommon for Mayas to adopt foreign gods. It's likely Cortes didn't understand that he wasn't converting the Mayas. He was just giving them another god to honor. No matter the reason, Cortes was thrilled at their apparent acceptance of Christianity. In his eyes, he'd succeeded in one of the most important aspects of his mission, especially after he met Jerónimo de Aguilar. Aguilar was a Franciscan friar who had been enslaved by the Mayas for eight years. He escaped and canoed from the mainland to Cozumel, arriving just before Cortes was about to depart the island. During his captivity, Aguilar became fluent in Mayan. So after the Mayas accepted the Christian God and released him, Cortes took Aguilar along as an interpreter and preacher. A few weeks later, Cortes left Cozumel with his men and sailed around the Yucatan Peninsula. Eventually, they ventured into the interior and came to a settlement called Patanchan. Unlike the Mayas on Cozumel, the people of Patanchan were far less accepting of the Spanish invaders. They repeatedly asked the Castilians to leave and that they didn't want war or trade. During the nights that they were debating with Cortes, the Mayas evacuated women and children from the area. The Mayas continued to offer small amounts of food and gold, attempting to pacify the colonizers, but it wasn't enough for Cortes and his army. When Cortes and Aguilar informed them that they were now subjects of the Spanish crown, the Mayas in Patanchan attacked. Unfortunately for the Mayas, the Spanish cannons were too much. The indigenous people of this region had not seen artillery before, and although the thunderous boom scared them, they rallied and fought. However, Cortes seized Patinchan and renamed it Santa Maria de la Victoria. While resting after the battle, Cortes met a woman named Malinche or Marina. He was instantly attracted to her. She was smart, cunning, and spoke Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica people. She became Cortez's mistress and joined his expedition. Her presence would later prove instrumental to his conquests. In the middle of April, Cortez set off with his men once again, this time returning to the Gulf of Mexico and heading north. Eventually, they came to a Teutonic village and were greeted warmly with food and lavish gifts. 
During his stay at the Teutonic village, Cortez met a man named Tendile. As it turned out, Tendile had been sent by the ruler of Tenochtitlan, Emperor Moctezuma. Cortez couldn't believe his luck. After all this time hunting for Tenochtitlan, an emissary from the city found him. He told Tendile that he wished to go to the legendary metropolis and meet the Mexica emperor himself. But the last thing Moctezuma wanted was to meet the Spaniards. As Cortez's expedition swept through the region, Moctezuma heard tales of their ferocity. With each new report, especially the ones concerning Spanish artillery, he feared what would happen to his city if they found it. Although debated by historians, there is a theory that Moctezuma feared that Cortez's expedition marked the arrival of the Aztec god, Quetzalcoatl. According to Aztec tradition, Quetzalcoatl ran afoul of the other gods and disappeared, traveling toward the eastern ocean known today as the Atlantic. There were many alleged signs that linked the stories of Quetzalcoatl and Cortez. Both of them came from the east, wore similar colors, and hated human sacrifices. Most ominous of all, in the Aztec calendar, it was the year of Quetzalcoatl. What made all of these signs especially disturbing was that in Aztec lore, Quetzalcoatl was an enemy of the patron god of Tenochtitlan. Thus, Moctezuma feared that Quetzalcoatl, in the form of Cortez, was back for revenge. As such, Tendile wasn't the only emissary Moctezuma sent to Cortez. In the weeks that followed, more Mexica ambassadors gave the Spaniards lavish gifts, including items which bore the images of their gods. Moctezuma hoped that he could buy off the Spaniards. If he gave them beautiful treasures, perhaps he could dissuade them from marching on his city. But the gifts had the opposite effect. With his unquenchable thirst for fame and fortune, Cortez wanted more. If the Mexica were willing to part with these luxurious gifts, he could only imagine what they kept in Tenochtitlan. However, Cortez faced a major obstacle, his own men. Cortez's crew was divided over their next steps. The men who were loyal to Diego Velazquez believed they'd accomplish their mission to convert natives and find gold. It was time to go back to Cuba before Cortez overstepped his authority. However, several others wanted to press on to Tenochtitlan. They claimed that they hadn't finished their mission, they still needed to establish outposts for Spain, and there was still more gold to be had. Cortez sensed an opportunity and channeled his inner politician. First, he ordered some of his men to locate a better harbor for future shipping. Many of these men belonged to the Velasquez faction. Next, Cortez established the town of Villarica de la Veracruz, known simply today as Veracruz. With the Velasquez loyalists off on the harbor expedition, Cortez filled the new town council with his supporters. Then Cortez announced his resignation as the expedition leader. 
Technically, Velasquez still held legal authority over the expedition, so anything Cortez did as leader could be held up for scrutiny in the Spanish courts. But by formally resigning, he was no longer bound to Velasquez or the law. Immediately after he resigned, the new town council elected Cortez as Veracruz's chief magistrate and captain general of the army. Now, the only person Cortez would ever have to answer to was Charles V, the King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. And since Charles was on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, Cortez could do most anything he wanted. Unfortunately for him, the plan crumbled quickly. Just a few months later, in June 1519, an envoy arrived in Veracruz with a message from Cuba. It said Charles had given Diego Valesquez authority over any explorations in undiscovered territory. This new decree inspired the Velasquez loyalists and Cortez's crew to plot a mutiny. They intended to seize the treasure Cortez had accumulated and sail back to Cuba. Luckily for Cortez, one of the conspirators feared his wrath and revealed the plot. Cortez immediately arrested the cabal, hanged many of them, and scuttled several ships to prevent any escapes to Cuba. After that, none of Cortez's men dared to try and double-cross him again. With his detractors silenced, Cortez set out for Tenochtitlan in early August. He left Veracruz with an army of 300 Spaniards. He was also joined by 800 indigenous Teutonics who hated Moctezuma's tyrannical rule over them. To reach the fabled city, Cortez's expedition had to traverse a diverse and brutal landscape. They climbed the harsh, snow-capped mountains and pushed through the dense pine forests. Cortez's determination seemed unstoppable, even in the face of hostility. One of the stronger independent city-states in the region, Tlaxcala, marshaled with many smaller regional tribes to attack the Spanish. Cortez responded with brutal force and bureaucracy. While Spanish units attacked settlements, Cortez negotiated with tribal leaders to form an alliance. The negotiation was simple. Swear loyalty to Spain or risk further violence. Around the same time as the encounter with the Tlaxcalans, more envoys arrived from Moctezuma. They informed Cortez that Moctezuma had changed his mind. He would be more than happy to receive the Spaniards at the nearby city of Chololan, known today as Cholula. However, his new allies, the Tlaxcalans, warned Cortez that Moctezuma was sending him into a trap. After much consideration, Cortez decided he would go to Chololan, and he forced Moctezuma's ambassadors to escort him. On October 12, 1519, Cortez and his men reached Chololan and received a warm welcome. The Spaniards marveled at the vast temples and enormous pyramids. Cortez even claimed that the city was more beautiful than any to be found in Spain. But despite the initial hospitality, the Tlaxcalans' warning proved to be true. Cortez learned from local priests that Moctezuma was considering an attack on the Spaniards. Cortez and his captains debated over what they should do. 
Some suggested they leave and regroup in Tlaxcala or head to a friendlier city. But Cortez didn't want to retreat, so he opted for a more insidious solution. Cortez announced to the Chilolan city elders that he and his men were going to continue on their expedition. However, he wished to say his farewells in the massive courtyard, where there was a temple of Quetzalcoatl. Once all of the elders arrived, the Spaniards immediately locked them inside. Cortez stepped forward, revealed that he knew about their treachery, and sentenced them to death. Over the next two days, the Spaniards and their indigenous allies sacked Chilolan. They burned down homes and temples and looted the city's gold and fine jewelry. By the time the massacre ended, between 3,000 and 5,000 Choloteca were dead. Cortez made sure Moctezuma's ambassadors bore witness to the onslaught. When it was over, he sent them back to Moctezuma with a message. Cortez had wanted to come in peace, but now Moctezuma's treachery had brought a war. A few days later, the emissaries returned to Cortez with a large swath of gold, food, and another message. Moctezuma apologized and claimed the whole thing was a misunderstanding. He also said that because food rations were low in the city, he wouldn't be able to properly receive the Spaniards. Cortez refused to take no for an answer. In another message to the Mexica leader, Cortez informed Moctezuma that it was his duty to see the city with his own eyes. He was coming to Tenochtitlan, and nothing would stop him. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll explore the contentious meeting of civilizations and Cortez's assault on Tenochtitlan. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Travis Clark. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.